Thank you very much for the introduction. And yes, I will hopefully be finishing my PhD um, at some point in the not too distant future. I paused my PhD to work on this book, um, uh, which started out as a research project uh, before we realized that actually um, it was quite critical that we tried to bring what we had learned from the research into the public debate and it turned into a trade book. I have my very messy, dirty version with me here, which has accompanied me uh, now uh, to, to lots of universities and, and lots of different places around the world since the publication. Um, so, yeah, controversial title. I'm sure some of you who are, who are thinking about going into consulting are looking at this title and thinking, what on earth am I about to listen to? Or maybe you work for a consultancy as a student assistant and you're thinking, hang on a second, uh, this isn't exactly my experience. Or maybe, um, as we often hear, uh, this sounds like it could chime very well with my experiences as being a consultant or um, of working with consultancies. Um, so before I get going, I'll just kind of add a little bit to the to the bio, not because I have a massive ego, but just to um, kind of tell you a little bit about why I became interested in this topic to begin with. Um, when I was working in the UK, I'm from the UK originally, if you can't, if you can't tell, um, and in, in the UK, it's pretty normal when you finish your bachelor's to go straight into work, right? Um, and so I did that for a few years. Um, I worked in public policy in, the, uh, in London and I was focusing well, in, on, on health policy and public health systems policy and one of the areas I was looking at was um, the use of uh, artificial intelligence technologies in the public sector, specifically in cardiovascular disease innovation. So I was working at one point for the British Heart Foundation, which develops a lot of policy for the NHS. It's not the equivalent of the Jährdefreiningen in Denmark. It's much bigger. It's a medical research funder that um, actually kind of acts like a consultancy or a type of consultancy with the British government. Now, while I was working there, um, we had a team from Deloitte come in. They were contracted to help the organisation um, with some work that it was doing with the National Health Service at the time, which was to develop the National Innovation Strategy for Cardiovascular Disease Research. Super important. And the British Heart Foundation funds you know, thousands of professors, cardiovascular disease specialists and nurses and, and lots of research in this area across the country. Um, Deloitte was brought in to, to develop this strategy both for the organisation and I was contracted to be kind of the person on the inside, the woman on the inside, um, which is very common in consulting. Um, so you have someone from inside the organisation and they're supposed to, you know, make it seem less like this is an external organisation coming in um, by kind of embedding part of the internal organisation in the external um, consultancy as well. Um, now, at that time, I was actually thinking I would really like to go into consultancy. I was thinking I would really like to go and work for one of these big companies. So this seemed like an amazing opportunity to be contracted as a strategy analyst within this consultancy. Um, but it became very clear during the process of working with this super talented, super smart group of um, very young consultants. They were my, you know, I was about 23 at the time or 24. And I think you know, I was about the oldest there, um, apart from the manager. Super, but super amazing Oxford degrees um, or degrees in engineering from Imperial. But it became very clear during the process of um, this project that no one had a clue what they were doing. 
and everyone was very, very open about that within our team, you know, not to my manager, not to the director of the organisation who we were accountable to, to, but within our team, we were just like, what the fuck, you know, and, and, and I was expecting to go in feeling a bit like, what the fuck, because I wasn't supposed to be the, the expert. I was supposed to be the person with the knowledge about the organisation I was working for. But I was surprised to learn that it, the, the people I was working with, who again were brilliant individuals, super, super intelligent, also had no idea what they were doing. I became very interested then in whether this experience was something that was representative of the wider sector, right? Maybe I just had a bad experience, right? But things go wrong in every single workplace. I've, I've, I've worked you know, with public sector organisations where things haven't gone according to plan, in third sector organisations where things don't go according to plan. I've got more than enough experiences of things not going according to plan in universities. Um, so I know that, that's, that one, one case is not necessarily um, emblematic of kind of the wider sector. Um, so I started doing some research and then um, the pandemic hit uh, and, and I moved to, I just moved to University College London after doing my master's in Copenhagen. I moved here primarily because I have a Danish husband, now husband, then boyfriend, um, and I uh, wanted to do this master's at Copenhagen. But then I moved back to London because I uh, was accepted onto the PhD programme with Mariana Matsukato at the UCL Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Um, and the pandemic hit a couple months after I started, or while I was starting my PhD. And all of a sudden, these consultancies and other companies, other organisations that had been involved in, or that I had been researching in my master's dissertation and that I'd been interested in ever since I'd worked within Deloitte, um, in the UK at least, became front page news. This was true in many parts around, the, many parts of Europe and many countries around the world where um, uh, the, the large consultancies, the multinational consultancies in particular, were being given very big contracts um, by governments to help develop very critical parts of the response to COVID-19 and, and the wider pandemic. So in the UK, and the UK is a critical case in this, res in this respect, um, in the UK, Deloitte was earning a million pounds a day at one point from its contracts. And these were what we can broadly refer to as prime contracts. So they were being given... Um, kind of contracts for aggregated services. So they weren't necessarily super specific. They were being given, um, and, and we learned this through interviews, for example, they were being handed £400,000 um, to do this uh, kind of whole service delivery or, or, or XYZ, and they were then subcontracting on behalf of the government. Right, so that's what's known in this literature or referred to generally as a prime contract or, or a type of strategic contracting. Um, now, a subsequent inquiry into the large-scale contracting out to consultancies in the UK found that the programme, focusing on the test and trace programme, found that it had been over, overly reliant on expensive contractors and temporary staff, and that the junior consultants that were brought in rarely had specialist expertise in the relevant area. Um, it concluded that test and trace has not, received, not achieved its main objective to help break chains of COVID-19 transmission and enable people to return to a normal way of life. Now, at this point, that's the kind of thing that we expect from the UK. I don't know if you've been following <laughs> UK politics, 
But if they were going to if they were going to do another thing uh, wrong, then you know the COVID nineteen was was probably likely to be to be that thing, right? Um, but it was not just the UK; it was many countries, including France. Now I don't know: are there any political scientists in the room, or anyone who is French and follows French politics at all? No. Well, F France has France has in political science and kind of globally this incredible reputation for its um, public administration, right? It's known for having one of the hardest recruitment, the most meritocratic, or, or you know, quote unquote meritocratic recruitment systems for the public administration in the world. It's a pretty grueling process. There's a lot of pride in working for the public sector in ways that we don't find in countries like the UK, for example. Um, but even in France, um, uh, uh, we, uh, consultancies were used at scale and scope during the pandemic. So. Um, in French politics, pretty much for the past year and a half, Le Scandale McKinsey has, has plagued Macron and the, and, and the government. Um, so, uh, and this scrutiny again began because France was way behind other countries in Europe when it came to the vaccine rollout. I think by the time that Germany and Spain had um, vaccinated something like 50 or 60,000 citizens. France had only vaccinated 5,000 citizens. And everyone was asking, why on earth is this? France has a good health system. What, what's gone wrong? And they started you know, to dig into it, or, uh, or, or members of the, of the Senate started to dig into it and discovered or uncovered that a lot of money for this vaccine rollout programme was going to consultancies and they were playing pretty fundamental roles, you know, not just taking notes in meetings, but actually chairing the meetings and coordinating important parts of the logistics. Um, yeah, and then, and then uh, subsequent inquiries found that the scale of spending in France as well had increased dramatically um, to around 900 million, which was double what had been spent three years earlier. Um, yeah, and, and, and an investigation found that some of the cases um, or some of the spending was, was actually not being used at all. So one of the cases was for uh, training that Boston Consulting Group and EY, two of the big consultancies um, that we focus on in the book, were supposed to organise an event for public sector officials and they were given over half a million euros and that event never took place. Another scandal, um, so these are, these are some other scandals that have made the front pages in Australia. Australia, if, you've, if anyone has been following Australian news um, or financial news in Australia will know, or perhaps even actually those of you who, who follow news around big tech, you will be familiar with what's, what's been happening in Australia at the moment, where, um, uh, not, not in this case, but um, uh, PwC has got into a load of trouble for advising the government on how to tax um, big tech companies or ensure that Australia is able to tax big tech companies based in the United States while simultaneously advising other big tech companies on how to avoid paying tax in Australia. Um, so uh, a look into that I'm not going to talk about in this presentation. But this, at the time of the, that we were looking at the book, or the time that we were writing the book, um, uh, this uh, Australia's net zero strategy also made headline news um, because it was found that it was full of holes and it had been developed by McKinsey, right? And, and this was in a, in a situation where it was very clear that the Prime Minister at the time was not very interested in reducing emissions in Australia. They have a very big, very well entrenched coal industry that's pretty crucial to the economic interests of Australia. 
Um, and the previous Prime Minister had said he didn't believe in climate change and the climate crisis and all of this sort of thing. And McKinsey was brought in um, to develop a strategy that um, essentially meant that very little of the kind of ex existing industrial emissions would need to be, um, need, need to be reduced. Um, the, the, then, uh, then, then shadow minister, but current uh, minister for climate change and energy, described the um, report that McKinsey subsequently wrote as a scamfler on net zero, which I think is a really Australian phrase. Um, and you can kind of imagine him saying that. Okay, now one a bit closer to home. I don't know if uh, I'm sure there are lots of people in the room who are familiar with this. Another, again, head headline grabbing scandal. I don't think it made necessarily um, kind of politiken or information in, in Denmark, but it certainly was in computer world um, and, and received a lot of attention at the time that I was working as a student assistant looking at IT and public sector um, privatisation and, and, and outsourcing in, in Denmark. So this was a case where in 2018, a partnership that had been negotiated between Capital Region and IBM Watson collapsed. Um, and um, the agreement had been for uh, IBM Watson to try to use um, data and the kind of processes of their health services in the capital region to try to develop some artificial intelligence. I think it was like healthcare system management um, or something like this, right? Um, and the deal collapsed completely. Um, and that was because essentially the people within the capital region started to lose faith in the promises of um, IBM Watson. And one of the employees involved in this contracting process described it as, it was very oversold what Watson can do. There is something of the emperor's new clothes about it. So the list of scandals is very long, right? These headline grabbing scandals, that case that I told you about from my personal experiences, I'm sure, um, if you speak to anyone who works in business or people who've worked in consulting, they can all give you some example of where something has gone very wrong in consulting. But we are more interested in the book, and again, this comes back to my kind of initial experiences, in whether these cases can tell us something more about the political economy and um, uh, and the growth of the transformations in our economy, the transformations in the relationship, for example, between businesses, governments, and citizens, the transformations between or within within models of corporate governance and how we understand, you know, effective governance in both the state and and, and businesses to be. We are interested in going beneath the surface a, li a little bit of these cases to try to understand if they really were emblematic of something bigger, um, and if they were what that was. So we set out with this, you know, big, big question, which is really, do what, what might consultancies, what might these, these cases and this growth in the use of consultancies in government and business tell us about what is described in political economy literature and the Financial Times now also refers to this term, the crisis of capitalism, right? Stagnation, um, uh, inequ increasing inequality, inability to respond effectively to the climate crisis. Is there a relationship between the growth of consultancies and this kind of crisis of capitalism? So we set out with these five questions. Um, the first one is, why do so many governments outsource critical activities to consulting companies? 
Why has the market for consulting companies grown so much in recent decades and globally? What do consultants do and what role does the consulting industry play in the economy overall? Why do so many well-meaning and smart graduates choose to work for these companies? Right, that sounds, it sounds like a pretty innocuous question, but, that, but by delving into that, you can actually learn a lot. And I would encourage, you know, maybe for research projects to, to kind of think, think about this. Why don't people want to work for government anymore? When, you know, the Danish government used to have one of the best parts of the Danish government still do, actually, if you look at Energiestrelsen, but for example. But um, the Danish government used to have this incredible reputation for being a world leader as a kind of innovator in digital technologies. Now, we would never think of the state as being the, the place where that happens, right? And what might all of this tell us about contemporary capitalism? Now, we ask those big questions because we're political economists, but um, they're usually interesting to, to other people as well. We focus in the book on the big four and the big three. Um, the big four, if you're, not, if you're not kind of aware of this terminology, is the term that's used by the industry and people who write about them to refer to Deloitte, EY, KPMG and PwC. They have their origins as um, accountancy firms primarily, but all earn most of their revenues from advisory services today. Um, accountancy has kind of famously low profit margins, but it's a nice kind of stable source of income relative to um, consultancy contracts. The big three are Bain and Company, McKinsey and Company and BCG, Boston Consulting Group. And they um, are kind of often referred to as the strategy consultancies. And that's, that's what a lot of people associate them with. They have quite different reputations. Um, they tend to do, um, or they tend to be associated with quite different things. But what we found is when you actually look at the types of contracts that they take, they all tend to work cross-sectorally. They do um, a, a range of different tasks uh, in lots of different areas of companies. And they're usually bidding on the same contract. So, so we might find reputational differences we might find differences in, or we do find differences in, in kind of what their key market segments are, what the biggest areas are that they work in, but they, they, they're all in the same business. Um, we, we build on this typology of consultancies um, in a great book by um, someone called Antonio Weiss, who is also, he's a public sector consultant now, um, but he did a, a PhD on the history of consulting in the British state that I would really encourage everyone to read because it's, if you're interested in doing historical work as well at any point in your academic lives, um, it's, a, it's a really nice example of um, how, how to do that. So um, we describe these strategy consultancies um, which have their um, kind of origins in what was called scientific management. Um, so this is Taylorism, and people familiar with the kind of idea of Taylorism, I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, but, but, but these then quickly kind of became primarily companies that were contracted to advise and provide company advice to, or corporate advice to emerging companies in the aftermath of the Second World War. Then we have these accounting companies that um, use their auditing client networks um, and their kind of reputation for quantitative rigor um, to then apply this to new areas or these new kind of emerging areas of consulting um, in, uh, from the 60s and 70s. Um, from the subsequent, in the subsequent decades, we also saw the growth of IT consultancies. So that includes Capgemini, Cognizant, IBM, um, CGI Group. Again, companies that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, may even work for um, as part of your studies. 
And they really grew and came to prominence uh, uh, with the growth of computerization and the need for um, uh, connectivity through firm growth. Um, that in the book, we talk about some of the challenges that this posed, um, and, and I won't go into too much detail here, but for example, um, there were some antitrust issues that were identified when IBM, uh, when IBM systems and infrastructure were the main infrastructure that was used in firms and in government. There were concerns in the US government that um, if IBM was both acting as the consultant for um, companies and it, uh, responsible for managing and owning the IT infrastructure, then it might advise companies to use their infrastructure, um, etc. So actually, for a long time, IBM was banned from providing consultancy services to companies that it um, provided IT infrastructure and services for. Now, on top of this, we also have, and this is something, we're not the first people to include outsourcing companies, um, and Falk is a Danish example of a company, we don't talk about it in the book, but that would be included within this category. We're not the first people to include them um, as a type of management consultancy, um, but it's something that we get asked a lot of questions about still, even though you know, we, obviously, we obviously didn't do a good job of justifying it in the book, even though we tried to. Um, the reason we include them is because often, again, um, these, the companies that we look at and include within these, this, this category, like Serco, Sodexo, Atos and Folk, are primarily not in the business of directly delivering public services um, or, or, or facilities management services, but managing the contracting of facilities management services. Um, so they, so they, again, are, are bidding for the same management contracts that um, the big three and the big four often are. So. Um, you know, one of the cases that we talk about in the book is the collapse of Carillion in the United Kingdom, which was a huge outsourcing company that managed facilities and cleaning services and various public sector health services uh, and construction projects in the United Kingdom. Um, and it was known as being a public services company or an outsourcing company. At the time that it collapsed in 2018, 80% um, of um, its, it was only directly delivering 20% of its services. So 80% were through these kind of very big um, prime contracts, but it was subcontracting other smaller firms to deliver services. Um, we also touch on in the book uh, what, what the literature, what the academic literature called boutique consultancies. It can be, a, you know, it's really, uh, it's really a term that the sector of boutique consultancies came up with itself, I guess, to, to, to describe, you know, the more specialist or the more tailored um, services that they promise to offer. We don't really talk about them in the book um, uh, uh, that much, um, apart from, you know, towards the end where we're, where we're looking at uh, things like mergers and acquisitions, because the big three and the big four often um, acquire the more successful boutique consultancies and they become part of their um, uh, uh, companies. So we look at that in uh, climate consulting. We have a chapter on climate consulting and we can see that many of the most successful climate consulting boutique consultancies have been acquired by the big three and the big four in recent years with some other implications. Um, but these, these generally, this term generally refers to consultancies that are locally based or providing a very niche um, service or working within a very niche market. Um, so the, I guess the most important thing to say is, you know, why is this, why is this worth looking at at all as an interesting sector in the economy is that in recent decades, the market for consulting services has grown immensely. 
1999, management consulting revenues were estimated to be somewhere between $110 billion, oh, sorry, 100 to $110 billion. Um, by 2010, the market size was around $350 billion, and in 2021, it ranged from $700 to $900 billion. We talk in the book about why we don't have accurate estimates of the size of the market. Um, and, and this is it's actually really annoying as a researcher to have access to some of the most expensive databases in the world, you know, company databases in the world as we do at UCL and not be able to fully understand, you know, the, the, the size or dynamics of a sector that is so big. And the main reason is simply that they are private companies, so they're not publicly traded. Therefore, they're not mandated to disclose financial information to shareholders in the way that publicly traded companies like um, Meta um, or, or, you know, most, most big companies are. Um, and um, they also can apply in, in some jurisdictions, you know, claims to uh, client confidentiality so they don't need to talk about where they operate in the world. Um, studies trying to estimate where they operate in the world because we still don't really have good information on that do show that the biggest markets are in um, Europe and Anglo-Saxon economies like the UK, US um, and Australia are, and, and Canada are kind of the biggest, um, uh, have, are the biggest source of demand. Um, but they are also working in secrecy jurisdictions. So a great um, study by some colleagues at Copenhagen Business School using LinkedIn data um, was able to identify that there were more people working in secrecy jurisdictions. So that's like Luxembourg, the Cayman Islands, um, uh, Panama for the big four accountancy firms, usually doing tax advisory services um, per population than for anywhere else in the world. So we know they're there. We don't really know what they're doing there. Um, you can hazard a guess. Um, yeah, so we an another great book for any history buffs in the room that we reference a couple times is um, a book by Christopher D. McKenna, who's, a, again, another historian of the consulting industry. It's, it's fascinating also if you want to understand more about how capitalism has, has developed. Um, and that's why we dedicate two chapters to the um, kind of transformations that have happened within capitalism and within our economies in relation to the growth and changes that have happened within the consulting industry. So Christopher D. McKenna places this kind of the dawn of modern consulting at the end of the second industrial revolution with the emergence of consultant engineers. So they were people like Arthur D. Little, a firm that maybe some of you have heard of um, and, and, and actually now refers to itself as the world's oldest management consultancy. Um, so these were independent consultants. Um, they were independent engineers who had usually done all of their training at places like MIT. And when companies were trying to um, manage the labor process within their kind of innovation, um, innovation processes within their firms, they would contract independent engineers to come and work for them for short periods of time. And eventually these independent engineers grouped together and formed these consultancies. So that's kind of at least where the emergence of some of these companies came from. Um, yeah, others have placed uh, the emergence of modern consulting uh, with, the, uh, 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 in, with, with the rise of Taylorism, which was uh, 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 viewed as being 
and if you don't know what Taylorism is, you know the form of management that has that uses stopwatches. So it's 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 um, you probably come across it in some kind of uh, class if you've done a management class before. Um, but it would it would say, for example, that the most effective way to um, or could say that the most effective way to deliver a task within a within within a um, uh, manufacturing process would be whichever is the quickest rather than you know using what was called the old rule of thumb method which was where individuals who had the experience who had worked in that area for a long time would simply apply what they felt as a kind of individual workers would be the most effective um, way to get things done so we had lots of independent consultants who came and promoted tailorism far and far and wide um, and and that also helped to spread that idea um, now, one of the things that um, many uh, historians write about is this regulatory change that happened following the Great Depression in the United States, which prevented accounting firms from also providing advisory services to companies that they were auditing. So this is uh, previously it had been accountancy firms that would often be the ones, you know, encouraging a company to adopt a new business model or, you know, advising them to lay off 2,000 workers. Um, but increasingly, they were prevented from, or after, after the Glass-Steagall Act, they were prevented from doing that. Um, and this kind of opened up or created a vacuum um, into which companies like McKinsey and Company stepped uh, uh, after being founded in 1926. Um, then, you know, some of these kind of bigger global trends, military expansions, um, the emergence and growth of the welfare state and this proliferation of multinational firms across Europe and eventually around the world um, became huge kind of sources of revenue for companies as they, for these new consulting companies as they were promoting um, their services far and wide. Um, and then increasingly, you know, during this was also a period of labour conflict within firms, right? So we had um, increasing mobilisation and organisation by trade unions, and often uh, c uh, these companies would contract consultancies for advice on how to manage um, labour disputes within within companies. So that was another source of revenue. Um, so that's a kind of whistle stop tour, where that's you know obviously a lot longer in the book, um, but just to give an overview. Now we focus when we that that period of time we really saw the growth outside of governments, right? But from the 1970s and 80s, with the emergence of new ideas about the proper role of government in the economy and um, uh, new ideas about how to do government, how we should be managing government, um, which were kind of captured within. Uh, uh, paradigm terms such as public choice theory or new public management, that's when we really started to see the growth of consultancies in government. And often that was because they were viewed as being able to provide advice on how to make things more efficient. Um, but also in countries like the UK and um, Australia, for example, um, where, where governments increasingly did not uh, have faith in their bureaucracies. They didn't have faith in, in, in the civil services. And there was also, you know, increasing financial pressures on the state during periods of um, financial crisis in these countries. Um, we saw the rolling back of 
the, of, of both state-owned enterprises and the retrenchment of welfare services or the outsourcing of welfare services um, to private sector actors. And it was during these periods in particular that we saw kind of huge increases in the use of consultancies in government. So under Thatcher, spending on consulting... Uh, services went from £6 million a year at the beginning of her reign in 1979 to £246 million a year in 1990. And then there were some other trends, such as the private financing initiative, where we saw consultancies not just brought in as advisors, but actually contracted to form um, groups within governments. And, and we, you know, we argue in the book, a lot of the literature you know, in, in, that focuses on the UK really points the finger at Thatcher in the 1980s. But actually, a lot of these ideas became entrenched with um, Tony Blair and, and what's known as the third-way paradigm. I think we had that in Trillevai as well in Denmark, though it came a little bit later. And it was, it, 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 in these cases, the kind of slogan that underpinned this form of government was that we need a government that can steer but not row. So we had this movement called the Reinventing Government movement that, you know, sounds amazing, Reinventing Government, who doesn't want to do that? But it had its origins in the United States and, again, became very, very popular. Um, and it was premised on this idea that, that the state was important. You know, unlike the kind of, quote-unquote, neoliberal politicians like Thatcher in the United Kingdom and Reagan in the United States, who actually didn't think governments were very good at creating value... The third way politicians really believed that there was an important role for government, but that the doing of government, the providing of welfare services, was not necessarily something the governments needed to do themselves. So it was often, they believed that it was often more efficient and effective to outsource those to the private sector. And it was during those periods that in places like the UK um, and, and in Denmark from the 2010s that we saw a kind of increase and in entrenchment of um, the use of consultancies in government services. Um, I'll just touch on this super quickly. So, so during, uh, you know, this is, this is not just a European phenomenon. As I mentioned earlier, consultancies' uh, uh, biggest markets have always been in, quote-unquote, the global north, but from the 1980s, um, we also saw consultancies spread around the world, and part of how um, that happened was because in countries that received loans as part of, from the IMF and the World Bank um, after facing sovereign default or, or the risk of were at risk of sovereign default as part of the conditions of the loans that they received, they were um, mandated to sometimes contract um, a consultancy or consultants to oversee the economic reforms that the IMF and the World Bank wanted them to implement. Um, so that's just quite an interesting area and, you know, um, we, we look at some of the other developments. So what we can see here, the reason why we have this kind of big, these chapters that look at not just the consultancies, but these broader transformations in government and in um, economies and in capitalism, the reason we do that is to show that we can't just, you know, look at the growth of consultancies as being the result of something that the firms do all by themselves, Right. The, the emergence and the growth, the spread, the transformation of their roles in economies is also a factor of the way that governments, uh, international organisations and businesses use them. So, so, so the, the, they are embedded in the transformation of um, our, our economies more widely. So we look at this relationship. But that said, we do also you know, want to point out 
some things that they, they do to help to increase the perception that they create value for economies, right? That's obviously critical as far as these firms go, that they need to be able to uh, convince clients that they are able to create um, value. Now, we might look at that in a kind of totally non-cynical way and, and, and say, well, these firms do really well. The reason why these firms have all got so big, the reason why they have so many clients is simply because they're very good at what they do. You know, they always deliver value for um, companies. They, they always do the things that governments want them to do. Um, the reason why they're so big is simply because they are, they are good forces. Um, they're able to create economies of scale and knowledge. Um, and, and, and that's the main reason, right? But there is another side. There's a critical management literature that we draw on here um, within academia that has studied the, the things that uh, consulting companies do to also help to maintain the impression or create the impression that they are creating value for clients, even when they don't have the receipts, even when they, when they aren't able to prove that to companies. Um, so we look at, for example, the types of knowledge systems that exist. So if you've ever applied for a job at a consultancy or if you're thinking of applying for a job at a consultancy, you will know that the, the way that um, you do, you, you, or part of the interview process is called the case interview, right? And case-based case, case forms of knowledge um, are assumed within consulting to be kind of a really important source of knowledge that can be uh, codified and distributed um, across the, the firm. So this is why we are kind of supposed to believe that the, the graduate who has never worked in a company um, before, never worked in you know, an insurance company or a car manufacturer, is able to walk in and provide advice to that insurance company or car manufacturer. It's because they have access to cases within this kind of digitalized system that they can read about and, and apply that knowledge to these kind of new cases. Um, the other thing is elite recruitment. So again, not so important in countries like Denmark, where you, know, you don't have that many universities to begin with. But in, in the UK, for example, the companies will recruit primarily from um, you know, my university, UCL, Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, the ones that you know, have, have, a, have a reputation, rightly or wrongly, for being you know, kind of top, top universities. And part of the reason they do that and again, this is not our argument. This is actually something that others have written about and studied. A big reason they do that is because um, saying when, when they are bidding for a contract that a government or a business is uh, putting out there, being able to say that we'll provide a team of people who have an MBA from Harvard, um, an engineering degree from Imperial a PPE degree from Oxford um, can help with the bid. It helps to increase confidence in the, in the company. Although there is um, evidence from the, uh, at least in the UK, from the Management Consultancies Association, and again, we discuss this in the book, that shows that the elite recruitment strategies are um, not as strong as they used to and that there has been an increase in recruitment from um, kind of non-elite universities in recent years. Um, I won't talk too much about the kind of slide decks and forms of uh, material that um, the companies uh, produce, but we do look just in, in this, in relation to this, we also look at the um, kind of quasi-academic output of many of these companies, which is super interesting, you know, as, as an academic. Um, so we see, for example, that many of these companies have set up um, 
what formerly have the title of university, but they're not, they're not actually universities. In countries like the UK and Denmark, they wouldn't be allowed to call themselves university. So there's like Deloitte University or Capgemini University. And these are places where um, people who work for these companies are able to apply and then get onto training programs and get some kind of qualifications from those companies. Um, uh, there, there are also research institutions um, such as McKinsey Global Institute, right? And McKinsey Global Institute, um, many of you might have looked at some of the, their output. They can produce super interesting, often very useful reports. They're able to recruit some kind of top academics um, uh, uh, from, from you know, again, top universities um, and all the rest of it. And, and they invest a lot of money in, uh, uh, in, in these research institutes. What we show in the book is that like, that, that may be true. What is also true is that their ability to produce these reports helps to create an impression that there is kind of much wider spread knowledge and expertise across the company than, than necessarily exists. So if, you, if, you, if you're working for a company and you get an email about McKinsey's next report on AI that has been produced by some of the best minds in, you know, in the field, then the next time that you need to get a consultancy to help you with your AI strategy, you might think, well, great, I'll call McKinsey. Of course, the people who are coming into the Work, on, work with you are not the people who wrote the report, right? So, so it, you know, both these things can be true at once. It's not just, you know, we don't say that what they produce is bullshit. That's just simply not true. It's, it's actually often very interesting stuff. Um, but there are kind of other reasons beyond, you know, purely, I guess, um, uh, academic reasons why, uh, why it is important for these companies to produce this material. Um, so that just that just kind of challenges this idea that um, these are, these companies are so big simply because they are always creating you know value for the companies that they and, and governments that they are working for. Um, one of the things, and I won't go into too much detail about this now because I'm swiftly running out of time. Um, but one of the other things we look at is. The, the kind of the, the economic structure of these companies. So one of the reasons why they are able to get so big at all is because they often do not take on the risks of contracts when they do not go well. So to give a very crude example, um, you know, when, uh, when we talk a little bit about Brexit, a uh, issue close to my heart, as you can imagine, but we talk a little bit about Brexit in the book and um, the huge outsourcing to consultancies that happened in the months following Brexit. Now, the type of advice or the advice that consultancies were giving to the UK government or to businesses in the aftermath of Brexit, they were not the ones who were going to suffer the consequences of that advice going wrong or not being useful, right? And that's usually embedded into contracts. Sometimes we see that some risk is transferred to the companies, but in very big, in very big contracts, um, particularly in government, the only way to incentivise uh, big consultancies to bid on the contract in the first place is to uh, ensure that they, or, or, or yeah, ensure that they are not also taking on the financial risk of that contract. So this this then creates what we call a skewed risk reward model, and we actually call it a type of uh, or the ability to extract um, value in this way as a as a form of economic rents. Um, which is, if you haven't heard that term, if you've not studied economics before. Um, might be a bit difficult to get your head around, but we do try to lay it out in a bit more detail in, in the book. Okay, so what are some of the consequences of outsourcing to consultancies at scale and scope? 
Um, we have big chapters on, on this in the book. Again, I'm just going to whiz through, through it now. One of them that we think is most concerning is the infantilization, or what we call the infantilization of public sector organizations in particular, but potentially also in companies. Um, this was not our term. Um, it was something that a conservative uh, minister in the United Kingdom said when he was describing the implications of outsourcing at scale and scope to consultancies during the pandemic. Um, so he said, Whitehall has been infantilized by an unacceptable reliance on expensive management consultants. Um, uh, and we, when we were doing interviews with people who had been involved in these contracts during the book, um, uh, we managed to speak to some people because we were interested in, you know, what does this infantilization actually look like on the ground? You know, like we can try to understand um, potentially people aren't able to take on what, you know, Lord Agnew called these juicy challenges. Um, but what does that actually, you know, look like in practice? Um, so one of the people who we spoke to who had been, who's worked for the government for many years, and he's actually a contractor, an IT contractor, um, but doesn't work for one of the big three. It's not in competition with the big three and the big four. Um, uh, and, and, you know, as, as you know, that's often how IT um, in government works now through people working on contracts for over many years. So one of the things that he said was... Um, it became clear in the beginning that the government had contracted an unprecedented number of consultants, some of whom had been brought in via subcontract, some contracts with other consultancies. Um, this scaled the huge amounts of people hired because of the fog of war stuff, the roving consultants, became an operational hindrance. And he said, the impression I had was that the organisation stood up so many new teams all at once, so there was always someone wanting to talk to you about some new thing that was upcoming but they often didn't even know what they were asking for. It just seemed like every new project had loads of wandering Deloitte people. And it strikes me that the sheer volume of them that were around created the situation of these zombie emails just arriving all the time, asking really basic questions that we had to respond to, taking our attention away from actual work. Um, so that's quite damning, really, you know, thinking about what the day-to-day -day dynamics of working um, in, in this situation look like. So something I haven't really talked about here, but that you know, we think is, a, 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 or we explore as being actually a very critical issue and maybe quite obvious issue in this sector, particularly in the work with government, is conflicting interests. I mentioned in the beginning that you know, it's very difficult to, find, to get information about these companies, which you know, if, you, if you understand theories of capitalism, like capitalism 101, like if it's, if it's going to work well, you have to have information, you have to have good information. That's, 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 that's how capitalism is supposed to work. We don't have any information about how these companies work. Who they're, or very little information about how these companies work, um, who, who they're working for. And, you know, there are very clear examples of conflicts of interest, like the... What was that? Like the... Um, sorry, there's something on the screen of that. It's fine. Um, like the case of PwC in Australia that I encourage you all to read a bit more about because it's probably relevant to your studies as well. Um, a, a kind of related example of this or, or related um, way that companies are used within businesses in particular is um, what someone described to us as rubber stamping. So this is where a decision has already been made within a company. And it's, this is a very common use of consultancies in business. A decision has already been made within a company, but there might be uh, some kind of conflict or tension between two of the decision makers in the company. So, so two executives, for example. 
um, and so a consultancy will be brought in because it has this reputation that enables it to appear to be the kind of objective um, arbiter. So one former senior consultant who we spoke to, this is someone who I think had worked at EY, said, often C-suiters, the people making the decision at the top of organisations, have already made up their mind, but they really need an external independent arbiter to validate the, their position or make the case on their behalf. They can then go to the board and say, oh, Deloitte or McKinsey or EY said we should do this. It's the consultancy credibility stamp of approval, and for me, I saw that on so many projects. So that's, you know, that also, I guess, um, is an argument against the idea that these companies are you know, just in the business of creating value and the scale that they exist um, at in any way reflects the kind of value creation that they, they have in our societies. Again, we talk a little bit about consultancies um, in, in labour disputes, but partly because this has been an under-acknowledged or under-researched area. Um, so we were able to do interviews and get interesting data from the um, AFL-CIO, which is the, big, the biggest trade union federation in the United States. Um, and they told us that, that very often, you know, um, a trade union, their, their uh, members will be at a bargaining table in a labour dispute and they will be presented with a report that has been written by a consultancy. And in that dispute or in that conflict, they then have no access to the kind of data or models or assumptions of the models underpinning those, um, uh, 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 that analysis that has gone into that paper. And so it makes it very difficult for them to, to challenge it. So these are some kind of, again, interesting ways that consultancies are used. Now, I won't talk about this now, but we have a whole chapter in the book on the, the growth of sustainability consulting. And maybe that's something that some of you have thought about going into. It's a huge thing in Denmark. Um, you know, you have uh, uh, one, of, uh, one of the biggest sustainability consultants globally is here, Rambul, um, you know, and is able to uh, carry with it the, 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 the flag of great Danish sustainability um, and, and, and take that uh, globally. Um, but but it's you know it's, it, I'm I'm interested in it primarily because of uh, what the numbers tell us. This this sector has grown immensely in the past couple of years. Um, again, you know we saw in 2021. Um, whole new divisions were established within the existing consultancies. Again, there was this huge M&A um, uh, activity, mergers and acquisitions activity that was happening within the big consultancies as well, where they were acquiring companies that were, were, were truly excellent. You know, I, I, uh, my organisation, my, my institute now did some work with a consultancy called um, Vivid Economics, as an ecological economics consultancy. And again, the people who work there are absolutely brilliant. Um, it has subsequently been acquired by McKinsey, um, and, and we see that happening at scale and scope. Again, um, the, the Conference of Parties of the UNFCCC, COP, had for the first time in 2021 a consulting partner, which tells you again about the growing kind of influence of, of the sector um, in this world. Um, and in the book, again, we interrogate a bit why is this happening now at a time when there is more pressure than ever for systemic change and for pressure um, uh, across the economy? So we're not just talking about turning the tap off when you brush your teeth anymore or recycling paper in an office, um, but actually, you know, uh, investment in green technologies and also potentially caps on high emitting sectors. What is it about this period that means it is now that we are seeing um, you know, huge uh, increase in the contracting of consultancies. We argue that there's a parallel 
um, to, uh, or we look at um, ECG frameworks, for example, and um, that, that other people have written about how consultancies have been used uh, as a way of resisting uh, regulation. And, and we, can, we argue that the proliferation of ESG frameworks, by which is, you know, that's not, an, that's not an overstatement. In 2019 in the UK, there were 700 different ESG frameworks in place. So if you don't know what that term means, it's environment, social, uh, environment, social governance um, frameworks. Um, and these are things that companies are adopting to kind of to measure themselves um, in terms of these three different areas. And there were so many different frameworks in place in 2019 um, that, you know, the whole premise of why they would exist, which is that we can compare companies between each other and then hold them to account, it doesn't really work anymore. So we have to look at other reasons why, you know, th this might be proliferating now and why these companies might be very involved or are, have been very involved in kind of promoting certain types of ideas. Now, I usually try to have a bit more time to go through the kind of positive, um, where do we go from here? But you'll have to excuse me because I have not done very well with my timekeeping. Um, and perhaps in the discussion, we can talk a bit more about uh, where, where we go. But just very quickly, um, you know, the, the, the big thing we argue is also the, the hardest thing. Um, uh, you know, I, I always say, the least realistic, the most necessary. Because pe people always say to me, you know, what's, what's the most realistic change that can happen? I mean, you know, I, I don't like that question because the most realistic thing is the thing that won't really make much difference, right? We just ask the companies to disclose a bit more information or, you know, we, we get them to put out statements that are non-binding saying we will make sure that we are creating value for companies or, or, we, or governments can say that they're not going to use them and then end up doing them. But that's not the stuff that's going to make a difference. So the big thing that we call for is, you know, we need to fundamentally rethink the relationship between states, markets and organisations and our economies. So this is not to say that governments should, should not work with external advisors. Absolutely not. It's important when governments are learning, when they, need, when they face new challenges, that they are able to use external sources of support, um, whether that's academics, whether that is, you know, companies that have genuine experience and expertise, and that could be consultancies, but it might also be, uh, you know, another type of company. Um, it could also be other, other types of non-profit agencies or, or, or research groups or communities. All of these kind of places can be um, sources of um, kind of uh, uh, insight and capacity that governments can draw on when they are trying to deliver things. Um, but fundamentally, we need, you know, increase, we do need increased investment in the capabilities of the public sector because um, if, if there is no kind of expert knowledge in the public sector, then as we saw with the IBM case I mentioned earlier in, in Capital Region, governments can really struggle to even assess the claims of the companies that are um, bidding on their contracts. So yeah, this is, this is related to this cartoon. We've, you know, uh, relationships, partnerships between governments or businesses and, you know, a consultant, and I t use that uh, term very broadly, should be about genuinely creating capabilities. And um, we have this, uh, yeah, we, we have this term brochurmanship that comes from one of Mariana's previous books um, where the director of NASA... Um, or the di director of public procurement during the Apollo mission, um, which was the you know race to get to the moon um, uh, during Na uh, under NASA, um, was concerned that if they didn't invest internally in NASA in the organisation, then they would be captured by brochuremanship and they wouldn't be able to man to manage contracting processes at all. 
Um, again, this is some, some kind of further calls from Mariana's previous book, which again, interesting read or great read, um, looking at how governments can set kind of ambitious innovation objectives um, and use that as a way to steward um, partnerships and, and, and the kind of activities of firms um, and government as well. Um, yeah, and, and again, this, this is just to say that uh, this is not, uh, the, the problems that we identify, again, are not just about the consultancies. It's also about, it's also questions like, why don't people want to work for the government? Or why don't people want to work for collective organisations? There's something about the types of work that government offers in, in areas like IT, um, the kind of instability of public sector careers, not necessarily in Denmark, actually, it's a bad, bad case because many people do want to work for the government in Denmark. But in most other countries, you do not find that. Um, what is it about the types of work the governments are able to offer um, that undermine the willingness of people to, to try to work for those places in the first place? So it's a systemic problem, uh, but there are things that we can do about it. I'll stop there. I have gone over time. Thank you. Thank you.